This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is Charlie Nardozzi, author of several books, lots of magazine articles, and his latest book, Foodscaping, Practical and Innovative Ways to Create an Edible Landscape. He's also a nationally owned and enthusiastic speaker on gardening and hosts his own radio show in Vermont and does TV spots, and you may also have heard him on HGTV or PBS. Good morning, Charlie. Good morning, Daryl. How are you? I am just fine. Yeah, tell people about your PBS show. Some some of them may have have it back in their memory. Yes, I, I was the host for Garden Smart, which is a, PB, a nationally broadcast PBS show that's still on the air. And uh, I did that show for a year or so, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, it was a lot of travel because what we would do is we'd go around the country and we would uh, shoot usually three shows in one area of the country. So we'd see some beautiful public and some beautiful private gardens there and kind of bring people into the garden. And we really prized ourselves on the idea of not only just showing a beautiful garden, but give you some practical tips on how to grow some of the plants. Uh, So it was a lot of fun. It was a real fun show to do. I wish they had more shows like that on TV. It seems like after HGTV went to house rather than garden, a lot of that went to... And, of course, funding for public TV is always a problem. But I'm glad you're here. Um, In one of those really odd coincidences, Charlie, you were writing for the National Gardening Association back when I was running the CompuServe, uh, when I was a member of the CompuServe Gardening Forum about 20 years ago. I was a member, then became a sysop, and, of course, now I'm I'm the manager. But when when I saw that you had a new book out, and, and remembering the wonderful articles you used to write for uh, National Gardening Association, I just had to have you on the air. And it just tickles me that you're the second person that I've connected with that was on CompuServe back in the Dark Ages. Well, yes, we'd like, like to think that we prized ourselves in being on the cutting edge of the whole computer, website, gardening information uh, revolution that's kind of happened, because I do remember CompuServe back in the 1990s, I think it was, right? I think it might, it might have been 92, um, but yes, it was in the 1990s, um, and I dug up, coincidentally, I dug up a, an old magazine, or the cat dug up an old magazine, that talked about new computer um, um, garden designing, okay. and I remember what a big thing that was when, you know, when people were finally able to draw things on a computer. Yes, I know that that... It felt like it had a lot of potential, but I don't think it ever really meet, met its potential. Uh, I still haven't found a great landscape design program on a computer, unless you really get into the professional software that a landscape designer, professional landscape designer might use. Uh, yeah. But as you know, we get a lot of gardening information now through the Internet, through the websites, through videos, through YouTube, through podcasts, through shows like this. Um, I think it's really one of the main places people get their gardening information now. And to think that 20 years ago it cost a huge amount of money. I remember using an offline reader because it was so expensive to do anything online, you know, paying by the minute. Yeah, it's amazing how it's changed so much. And and we were there at the beginning. Look at that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, pioneers for sure, weren't we? Yes, we were. 
Um, Charlie, how did you get into gardening? Well, I was uh, born and raised in Connecticut, and I was born in the shadow of my Italian-American grandfather's uh, farm. And so he had this, he's an old Italian guy from Italy, and he had this farm that was, I guess we would call it a diversified farm now. It was, you know, basically he did whatever he had to do to make a living. He raised some animals, he had chickens, he had cows, he had apples, he had big vegetable gardens, he had hay fields, he did a lot of different things. So I have these fond memories growing up in the shadow of that farm because whenever one of his six kids got married, he gave them a piece of land on the farm to build their house. So I oh, grew cool. up in this Italian-American enclave <laughs> with all my cousins, my aunts and uncles, and, of course, working on the farm with my grandfather. So I think that's kind of how it got into my blood. And then, of course, I went to school and majored in horticulture and got a degree and got a master's in education, and this kind of has continued along ever since in that same vein with plants and specific, specifically with edible plants. I've always had a, a penchant for growing food and loving to grow food, and especially eating and cooking with food. Now, that's a fine, fine childhood. Now, it's too bad that kids today don't generally have a chance to do that. My grandfather also had a farm, and one of the great delights that I had was, was spending time there. And, and my grandmother would let me help garden even when I was a toddler. I'm sure I wasn't a very good help to her, but everything was encouraged. Yes, it was, and it left such great memories. You know, certainly there was many days where you were picking rocks out of the fields or mm -hmm. harvesting potatoes, but there was also fun days where I can remember my uncle. I guess people would be aghast that they would let kids do this now, but uh, he would have his tractor with a little bucket on the front, and the kids would sit in the bucket, and he would raise it up into the cherry tree, and we would be up there picking cherries. <laughs> That would break all kinds of safety codes now, but back then it was okay. <laughs> I'm sure it would, and, and now kids can't, you know, can hardly get around machinery these days, too. And I, I guess, you know, considering the number of farm accidents, it's probably good that there is some restriction on it. But um, for sure, we did a lot of stuff back then that, that would be totally frowned on now. But a lot of it was necessary, too, just to take care of the animals and being on the farm. Yeah, just to take care of things. So. It's kind of nice to see things coming full circle in a lot of ways because, I, as I mentioned, I do a lot of talks around the country at Master Gardener conferences, at trade association meetings, at flower shows. And the last five, ten years, I would say that I've seen a, a very interesting change in the audience that comes to my talk. So it used to be, especially with edible gardening talks, vegetable gardening talks, I'd get a lot of the 50- to 60-year-old experienced gardeners who've been doing this their whole lives. But now I'm getting that same crowd, plus I'm getting a lot of the 20 to 30-year-olds who are really interested in learning more about it. They kind of want to go back to that um, past a little bit and start growing some of their own food and, and learning how to grow their own food, but they don't have that direct connection that you or I had with a, a grandfather or an uncle or an aunt or some kind of family member who had a farm. So they kind of missed out on that whole generation, and they're yearning for that connection. So it's really interesting to see that there's a real strong passion out there to learn about growing your own food and how to get that information and to do it themselves. And I'm delighted to see so many young experts, um, like some of the pictures in your book are from, I recognized it immediately from our friend Shauna Coronado's garden. And Shauna's been my guest before, and, and she is just a fireball, isn't she? 
Oh, yes, he is. He's a lot of energy. He's really fun. And that's what we did with the book. You know, we put the word out there through uh, the Garden Writers Association, which I'm a member of, and that's a professional organization of, of people who do garden media. It's not really not just garden writing, but really garden media of all different types, including radio and TV. And we put the word out there that we were doing this book, and uh, through those connections we came up with some great photographers who are, as you say, not the, the top-of-the-line, highest-paid photographers, but they're very good photographers um, who do a really nice job and who really have a, their own gardens that they can shoot and then share with other people. And that is one of the things that is wonderful about the Internet and the way people can connect now and share information. And then there are websites like the Garden Professors and their Facebook page that help bust the myth when, you know, some of the information that's out there didn't come from the extension office, I'm afraid. And some, so there's some bad information. But as you mentioned, we, we've um, got the Garden Writers Association, and garden writers are probably the most freely giving people that I know as far as giving advice or saying what has worked or recommending something or someone for, for another writer to talk to. And I just love it. It's a wonderful, wonderful atmosphere. Yeah, it's a great atmosphere. They do a, a fabulous annual meeting every year all around the country, changing their locations around the country. Uh, it's a great place to go and, and meet people and find out what's going on and learn a little bit about horticulture and also about the communication skills you need to, to stay up on top of all the new technology and all the latest things with the Internet. And they're fun. Yeah, I meet some fun. of the nicest people on the Garden Writers Association uh, trips, and even though now I can't get around and travel and, and, you know, they don't have, most gardens are not handicapped accessible, so I haven't been in quite a number of years. But it's a wonderful opportunity for any of our listeners that might also write or blog and be interested in joining with other like-minded people. Mm-hmm. Charlie, yeah. I have to ask you, did your grandfather grow figs in Connecticut? You know, he didn't grow figs. Um, I grow figs in Vermont, <laughs> but he didn't grow them in Connecticut. I'm not quite sure why, um, because he came from southern Italy, certainly a land of figs, and um, I'm not quite sure why I'd, I never saw him grow any figs. But I have heard of stories of relatives, especially in Brooklyn, New York, who would grow them in garbage cans or who would grow figs in their backyard and then bury them in the winter so that they could survive the winter because, as you know, with figs, down in Georgia, where you're based, is not a problem. But um, when you get up towards New England, the mid-Atlantic states in New England, it's just too cold in the winter for them to survive outdoors. So you have to be a little more uh, clever about how you're going to do that. I remember reading stories about gardeners in, in Brooklyn that did that, and, and one of our CompuServe Garden Forum members w- did that also. Um, he had moved, had learned how to do it from his grandfather in Brooklyn, and he moved out to someplace, the wilds of New Jersey, I guess, and would yeah. uproot the shrub and bury it in the ground for the wintertime and then take it out when spring came. Right, yeah, so... I can't even do that up in Vermont, but what I do is I plant them in containers. So they're in, the ones I have are in pretty large containers uh, filled with potting soil, compost mix, and then I let them grow all summer. Then come fall, October, the, the leaves yellow and drop naturally like they will do. They go into dormancy. And then before it gets too cold, gets before, before it gets below freezing, I bring them down to my basement, and I just leave them there. Uh, barely moist soil, just kind of leave them there in the dark until February, March or so then they start naturally leafing back out again. They have their own biological clock that goes off. 
And at that point, then I have to either bring them up into the garage because it's too cold to put them outside here um, and keep them warm there for a month or so. On, and then eventually, like they are right now, they're in full leaf. They look beautiful right outside my garage and uh, get some figs by the fall. That's a great way to grow a lot of things. And unless you're like me, I have a fig bush out by my back deck that I put in a big pot intending to bring it in or to actually to plant it someplace, um, and it rooted through the pot. <laughs> it's been there. <laughs> course, yeah. It's been there in this 20-inch pot rooted into the ground for about, oh, I don't know, 10 or 15 years now. Yeah. Well, there's a, a nursery that I've gone to with my mother down in Connecticut, an uh, old Italian guy runs it, Antonino D'Annunzio. And in this old nursery with this old glass house that's kind of half fallen apart, he's been growing this fig tree in the center of his greenhouse for years. And he keeps these greenhouses heated in the winter so it survives. Now it's this big trunk of a tree with branches spreading out through the greenhouse. And you go there in the spring and you can get actual fresh figs off of this tree while you're picking up your geraniums and your tomatoes. <laughs> it's kind of a fun How experience. wonderful. That yeah. sounds that sounds absolutely terrific. We're going to have to take a little break right now, but when we come back, we'll talk more about growing figs and other vegetables and fruits in containers. We'll be right back. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Charlie Nardozzi, author of many books, including his latest, Foodscaping, Practical and Innovative Ways to Create an Edible Landscape. And one of those practical ways we've been talking about, and that's growing figs in containers. And you've answered one of my other questions, because um, what do you do about blueberries in containers up north? Do you treat them the same way as you do uh, fig bushes? Because obviously it's up in Vermont, you, you know, a container would freeze solid. Yeah, anywhere where it's really cold. You know, it could be Vermont, New England, uh, the upper Midwest, any place where it's going to get down to around zero or below. Anything you're growing in a container, you're really going to have to protect. And so if it's a blueberry, uh, if you're in a place that's kind of marginal, maybe you get down to 10 degrees in the winter, something like that, you probably could just mulch it in really well into a mulch pile or a lot around the back of a house or a barn or a garage and uh, mulch it with some hay or even with some soil, and it'll probably survive okay. If you're in a much colder climate, though, like I am in Vermont, you really do need to bring it inside, either into an unheated basement or an unheated garage, somewhere where it won't get below 20 degrees. And that, that way uh, it'll be able to survive and the roots will be able to survive the winter so that you can bring it back out and enjoy it. Now, do they, can they go in the dark, too, like figs, or do they need some light? Uh, the blueberries uh, mostly are uh, deciduous, so they're going to drop off their, all their leaves, and so they don't really need any light either. Just like the figs, you can leave them in a dark basement or a dark garage until, again, February, March. That's when naturally they'll start wanting to grow. 
and if it's warm enough, they'll actually start leafing out. They won't be as aggressive to leaf out as a fig would be because a fig is more of a subtropical plant, um, but they will eventually want to leaf out if it's warm enough in that garage or basement. That's a good thing to know. I used to, before I had my greenhouse, I would shoo all the stuff out of the garage in the wintertime and put my plants in there. But we did have, you know, light windows all the way across the front, and it was south-facing, so things got a fair amount of light. The only problem I had with that here is we get, sometimes we'll get up to 70 for a few days in the winter, and things just wouldn't, didn't want to stay dormant. Yeah, and that could be an issue in a warm basement. If you have a basement that's well insulated and stays in the 50 to 60 degree range all winter, it's going to be kind of hard to keep your tree or shrub uh, dormant in those kind of conditions. You ideally want something closer to 40 degrees to keep them from uh, sprouting back up. And I guess people don't have very many cold cellars anymore, do they? Yeah, it's not as common as it used to be. So you have to get a little bit creative. Sometimes what I've done is we have what we call a Bilco door, which is a metal door so you can walk from the outside down some steps into our basement. And sometimes I've actually put the, the figs when they were younger and smaller. I put them in that on those steps and just close the door in the early part of the winter. And that way they were getting cold but not so cold it would kill them. And then when it gets really cold, say after Christmas or so, then I'd have to bring them inside. That's a good thing to know because we have a nationwide audience, and you do have to get creative sometimes. I remember now that you mentioned it, I completely forgotten that we had one of those doors on our house in New Jersey, and I would put some of my plants down there, and in particular in the winter for forcing bulbs. Yes. because it would stay cold, but it wouldn't freeze until very, very late in the winter when I was about ready to, you know, ready to bring them out into the light to force them anyway. Yeah, and we often do that with our winter squash, with potatoes, other kinds of crops that we grow uh, in our garden and we want to bring in and, and save through the winter. Uh, finding the right place with the right amount of humidity and right amount of temperature is a great way to be able to save those well into the winter. So you'll be eating winter squash in February, March, and potatoes the same time of year. That's another good tip for our listeners. Um, when you're talking about, you mentioned right place and right temperature, but right place and right exposure is important for growing plants too, isn't it? Yes, it is. In, in my book, Foodscaping, I spend a whole chapter talking about landscape design ideas, and one of the key landscape design concepts is growing the right plant in the right place. And that means if you want to avoid issues like having a lot of insect and disease problems, having poor growth on the tree or shrub, having something that gets too big for that location so you have to do some drastic pruning down the road, if you want to avoid all of those issues, the best thing to do is do a little research about the kind of plant that you're planting in that location and get the right variety. So, for example, we've mentioned blueberries as a great edible landscape or a foodscape plant that you can grow in your landscape. There are three different kinds of edible blueberries um, out there as far as plant size goes. You can get the low-bush blueberries, which grow as a ground cover, and they stay really low. Um, they're a nice little ground cover in the front of a border, and uh, you never really have to worry about them getting out of hand. Then there's the opposite extreme, or the high-bush blueberries, whether it be the southern high-bush or the rabbit-eye blueberries down south or the northern high-bush ones you grow up here in the colder climates. These can grow up five, six, seven feet tall, so they're a big shrub. So if you want to put them uh, against your house where your foundation plantings are and you're planting them, say, near a window or near a walkway, you have to kind of keep in mind that this little shrub you might have bought at a nursery that's only a foot or two tall is eventually going to get six or seven feet tall. And so you want to have enough space for it 
so that it can really fill out. Plus, you want to put it somewhere where it's going to thrive. So in the case of blueberries, you want full sun, which means six to eight hours of direct light a day. You want well-drained soil, so it doesn't, it's a clay soil is something you probably want to avoid with blueberries. And you want to be able to treat that soil so it becomes more acidic. Now, if you're living in an area of the country that has alkaline soil or soil that's around neutral pH between, say, 6 and 7, you're going to want to add sulfur to lower that pH below 5. If you're living in a part of the country where you already have a low pH, you're in a perfect spot to grow blueberries. So those high bush blueberries are great ones to have in islands along the foundation of your plants, uh, along the foundation of your house. But if you have a spot where you want to put, a, a, say, a three or two or three foot tall shrub under a window or in, tucked in a little spot in your landscape, there's what we call half high blueberries now. And these are blueberries that produce the berries the same as the high bush ones, but they only grow two to three feet tall. The shrub itself stays small. North Country, North Sky, North Blue are some of the ones that are out there. These are beautiful-looking little shrubs, great for small spaces, allow you to grow a blueberry and enjoy a blueberry without having to worry about this big plant that you can't really fit in your landscape. I am so glad that they're working on smaller varieties because, as you said, you know, the rabbit eyes um, and southern highbush get huge. I've got some that are were fully eight feet tall in part because they started getting shaded out as my landscape matured. And... That's, that's a problem if you have low windows, for sure. Yes, and people don't, I, don't th- I don't think people know how beautiful a blueberry bush can be with that blue-green foliage and those beautiful white flowers in the springtime. Yeah, and the beautiful blueberries and the fall foliage color. I don't know about mm-hmm. where you are in Georgia, but certainly up here in the north, the fall foliage color of blueberries rivals any of the fall foliage colors of most of the shrubs we have out in the wild. It's a bright red. It really shines. And so if you have a number of these plants around your house, all of a sudden now you've created the foodscape that you've been looking for where you have an edible plant planted as a foundation plant around your house. It's low maintenance other than keeping that pH low that I mentioned earlier. There's really not a lot of problems with blueberries as far as growing them. They don't require a lot of pruning or a lot of spraying. Um, Annual fertilizing with some compost and organic fertilizer is usually a good idea. And then you get those beautiful white berries, the blueberries that you can eat, the white flowers, the blueberries you can eat, and then the nice fall foliage color as well. And there are varieties like pink lemonade out there. I don't know if you know this one, Daryl, but this one uh, is a blueberry variety that doesn't turn blue. (laughs) Think about that. It's a pink variety. I've read about it. How does it taste? I have not grown it. I have tasted it. It's not as good, in my opinion, as the regular blueberries. But if you're looking for something a little different and you want to have some different kinds of color in your landscape, it's certainly worth a try. I always grow for taste first. And, and then if it, if it has other nice attributes, that's great. It's like with the blueberries, as you mentioned, the fall color here is absolutely spectacular. And here where I am, north of Atlanta, that fall color will persist into December. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so growing the right plant in the right place is a real key concept that I, I spend a lot of time on in the book. And I have a whole gallery of plants that's in the book as well, talking about 40 of my favorite foodscape plants. And a lot of them are ones that you can actually combine together, which is something that most people don't really think about when they're growing, say, a tree in the yard. Maybe they have a, a semi-dwarf tree, maybe a shade tree, a small shade tree, or a small flowering tree like a flowering crab apple tree or a crepe myrtle or something like that in the yard. And then underneath it, they just put mulch, you know, or nothing at all. They just let the lawn grow up to the trunk. So instead of doing that, you can actually grow a fruit tree, like a dwarf 
North Star Cherry, for example, is a nice uh, self-pollinating fruit tree. Only grows eight to ten feet tall. You only need one of them, so you don't need two different varieties to cross-pollinate. Get some beautiful pie cherries off of this tree. And because the tree is not that big and doesn't cast that big of a shadow on a shade, underneath it you can grow things like strawberries. You can just let you have your whole strawberry patch underneath the cherry tree. Or you can grow mint or some of the herbs underneath, some of these creeping plants that are edible plants that will combine the, the multiple uses of having some beauty in your landscape, some lack, you don't have to do as much work because now you have a plant that's covering the ground underneath it and you don't have to be weeding as much, and you're getting some nice leaves and nice fruit uh, from this combination of a fruit tree and a ground cover. I am a big fan of using vegetables and fruits wherever they will fit, even if it's just a little patch by the front door. Yes, exactly. Uh, so wherever you can kind of mix and match things in there, and you often, you know, one of the big issues when we're taking, taking a look at a landscape and trying to grow uh, fruiting plants, vegetables and fruits and edible flowers and, and herbs, is often we don't have a lot of sun. I know many people now can kind of complain about, well, I'm living in the city now or living in a, a more of a community now. There's people right next to me. Their houses are tall. I'm getting more shade in my yard. Or they've been in an area for a long time, and the trees across the street that used to be five feet tall are now 50 feet tall. <laughs> so all of a sudden, that sun that used to be pouring into their yard, uh, full sun all day long, is now it's part shade. So often people look at that and say, well, I can't really grow edible plants because I don't have enough sun. But it's really not true. If you're growing vegetables, for example, if you have fruiting vegetables like tomatoes and peppers and eggplants, certainly you need six to eight hours of sun to get the best production. But if you're looking at other kinds of vegetables like root crops, carrots, beets, parsnips, radishes, you can get away with three to four hours of sun a day. So maybe even just like an afternoon sun or a morning sun might be enough to be able to grow those crops to fruition. And even if you only have a couple hours of sun a day, you can grow leafy greens like Swiss chard and collards and lettuce and spinach. You won't get the best production from them, but you'll get something that you can eat. So you can kind of mix and match things around your yard so you can put vegetables in places where they don't get as much sun, or you can actually put vegetables in places where you understand the way the sun changes through the season, which is another thing people sometimes don't understand, is that uh, we'll be coming up on the solstice at the end of June when the sun is the highest in the sky. At that point, your yard might have all sun all around it. But you know, later in the summer when that sun is lower in the horizon, you might be catching some shadows from a neighbor's house or neighbor's tree. So if you're trying to grow a fruiting crop, you might not have enough time for it to mature. So the thing to do is to grow things in succession. So grow your beans, for example, and then you pull them out in, in August and you can plant your fall crops of, of kale and lettuce and spinach that will go into the fall. And then that way, you'll have two crops in that spot and you have the right crop in the right spot based on the sunlight level. And these days, so many people love their greens. Um, I'm delighted. I, 20, 30 years ago, I think I was the only person in the state growing kale, and now it's everybody's got it. It's everyone's favorite crop, especially when you make kale chips out of it. I have not tried that. Oh, you should. It's a really tasty dose, a little, little snack. Maybe next fall I will give it a try when my kale is, of course, because my kale is pretty well done for now, yes. and the lettuce is, as we've been up close to 90 degrees a few times. We're going to have to take a little break right now, but when we come back, we'll be talking more vegetables and shade and finding places for them in your landscape. We'll be right back after this. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Charlie Nardozzi, author of lots and lots of books, and his latest we're talking about today is Foodscaping, the Practical and Innovative Ways to Create an Edible Landscape. And Charlie, right before the break, you were telling us about finding space for vegetables when you think you have a lot of shade. And it does really take some thinking cap work, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And it, now, when we first moved to our, our latest yard where I live now with my wife, uh, we spent the first summer actually not planting anything. We spent the first summer just watching. And what we were watching for is where are the shadows? Um, what time of year? Where are the shadows in May and in June? And where are the shadows in August and September? How much sun do different parts of the yard get? How much wind exposure do you have? If you're trying to grow perennial crops, trees and shrubs, uh, you want to avoid a real gusty northern winds a lot of times. Or if you're along the coast, you want to avoid those salt sprays coming in that could uh, somehow sometimes uh, damage your crops. So we spent time just kind of noticing what was happening in the landscape before we started making our plans for what was going to be put where. When you do that, you really get a, a more sense of your land and more sense of the environment that you're living in, and it gives you a chance to build up the soil, which is always a great thing to do before you plant, whether it be a vegetable garden or a fruit garden or an herb garden, to really spend some time building up the nutrients in the soil, building up the organic matter in the soil. And then once that's in place and you know what plants can go where, then you're going to have more likelihood of success by putting the right plant in the right place that will really thrive. I used to recommend to my design clients that they would, in my classes, that they do a sun map starting in spring long about the, the equinox and then going through until midsummer. And that way, if they make do little simple drawings and, and copy them out, you know, run them through a copier, and then mark where the sun is coming up, where, you know, some areas become in the shade later on. And do that about every two weeks from, like I said, early spring to midsummer. Or if they move in in midsummer, as so many people do when they've got kids in school, do it from then until fall, because that's pretty much your basic gardening season. Yes, and it's something that I wish I had done before I put my little water garden in, because... Well, first off, all the books say to put your water gardens in full sun because most of the books at the time were written in England. And <laughs> <laughs> and I ended up, I did that, and we you know, frantically started planting uh, after that to give it enough shade because, so we didn't get such a big algae bloom and the fish didn't cook in the pond. And, uh, and I, But I didn't also know that that, that, that part of the yard was in complete shade in the wintertime. Oh, okay. So it's very difficult on the fish. And, of course, on, you know, the plants mostly don't care because we just drop them to the bottom. But, but uh, we had to run a little um, 
little heater for the for the fish to keep the water open enough so they could breathe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, and, so it's good to know where those shadows are. And, and actually, I've seen places where they want to grow something like grapes. They want to grow a vine. They want to grow an edible vine, like a grape or a or, um, hop, which is actually an edible vine, not just for the, the strobles, the uh, little flowers that are on it, but actually the hop shoots, when they first come out of the ground, actually make a delicious little uh, vegetable when you harvest them when they're about six to eight inches tall and saute them like you would an asparagus. They have a nice flavor. And you won't get really? those either. <laughs> <laughs> But if you have shade and you're trying to grow a vine, a lot of times what you can do is grow the vine in a shady spot, but up above it, maybe five, six feet above it, it might be sunny up there uh, because the, the, the light comes in over a tree or around a building. So if you have a pergola or an arch or an arbor or some kind of structure where these vines can grow up, you'll often be able to get production on your grapes, on your uh, hardy kiwis or regular kiwis if you're in a real warm part of the country or your hop vines or any of those edible vines just by growing them up a pergola and an arch. And they have a nice landscape function because now they're shading you. They've created a nice shady spot in your yard where you can sit and enjoy the summer days and not be too hot from the sun. Plus, you have these grapes hanging down or kiwis hanging down that you can just reach up and just deliciously eat. Our neighbor next to us in New Jersey had grapes growing on their arbor, and it was really nice. We could go in there and pick them, but towards the end of the season, you certainly didn't want to sit in there because every yellow jacket in the world was in there. (laughs) Yeah, you do have to be good about harvesting if you're going to have the grapes hanging there, but it is a way to maximize that space and to grow in your foodscape some edible plants that have multiple functions, and that's one of the things I really uh, focus on in this book is the multiple functions that edible plants can have in the landscape. So we've had this history or tradition of growing all the vegetables in a garden and all the fruit in the orchard and all the herbs in the herb garden and not really combining things and having the flower garden over here and the shrub border over there. In the edible landscaping world and in this foodscaping book, I try to show different ways to grow edible plants and different places to grow them. So, for example, I mentioned earlier in the show about blueberries as foundation plants, plants that you can grow along the foundation of your house that will have the function of adding beauty but also give you that edibility, that nice uh, berries that you can enjoy. Other plants like currants and gooseberries do really well doing the same type of thing. They're nice-looking shrubs that you can grow along your house. You can also use edible plants as hedgerows. So often you'll have hedgerows of evergreens, of cedars, or of lilacs, or of privets, or, or boxwoods. But all these plants are beautiful, but they only have that one dimension of functionality to them. They don't have really any kind of edible component. I've seen people grow asparagus as a hedgerow. So if you think about asparagus, it grows up in the spring, you harvest it for six weeks, then you let it go to fern, you let the fronds grow. Now, if they let those fronds grow and you have nice, healthy asparagus, they can grow up six feet tall. I've seen people trellis them or actually put some fencing around them just running a wire on either side of them so that they stay vertical, they don't flop down in storms, and all of a sudden they have this really soft, luscious-looking hedgerow of asparagus that's between their yard and, say, a neighbor's yard, maybe blocks of view in the summer. And it's a great idea. When I read that, I said, bingo, because I have somebody who asked me what to put near their pool because they wanted to grow edibles. The pool was in the only sunny area that they had, and when I saw that you wrote asparagus, I just I had to call her right away and say, you know, I try this. 
yeah, try that. It would really work really well. So, and asparagus is a long-lived crop too. It could go 30, 40 years if you take good care of it. Um, you can also, if you're trying to keep animals, maybe the neighbor's dog out, or maybe even some wildlife, a deer, for example, out of your yard, and you have a spot in your backyard where they're coming in. You know where their run is. You can put a blackberry patch back there. If you've ever tried to walk through a wild blackberry patch, you know it's not easy. <laughs> If you put an 8- or 10-foot-wide patch of blackberries back there along the back uh, border of your property, I would bet that those wild animals will find another way to go around and not come into your yard. Plus, then and you if, the uh, berries to eat. And if you're in the south, you don't even have to plant it 8 feet wide. You just plant a single row and give it a year, and it will be 8 <laughs> feet in all directions. You plan, you plan for the 8-foot-wide uh, bed that will be there. Yeah, yeah. It, it, that's just so, such a rampant grower. It is a rampant grower. So, you know, you, there's lots of places in your yard where you can actually use these foodscape plants. I mentioned earlier again in the show about growing ground covers underneath some of the trees. Even if you have a big old oak tree or something of that nature, you can grow some uh, plants underneath it. So there's a lot of places you can tuck in edibles into your yard where you normally wouldn't think about it and have the benefit of having the edible there and having it look nice and not having to spread out all over your yard. Even if you have a big yard, if you can keep it more contained and keep things closer to the house, uh, keep them uh, more in a certain area where you're taking care of them, it's going to be a lot easier maintenance-wise. You know, you're going to do a lot less work watering, weeding, caring for them than if you have them all spread out all around your property. And some ground covers, like, well, some of the mints, actually, if it's beneficial to grow them under a tree, from, from my standpoint anyway, because the tree is sucking so much moisture and food out of there that they don't go crazy and spread quite as fast as they do otherwise. Exactly. And also they have the function of flowering and attracting beneficial insects. And that's a whole other realm that I talk a little bit about in foodscaping. Growing certain herbs, like borage, for example, is a great herb to grow if you want to attack, attract beneficial insects into your garden. If you grow that underneath some of your fruit trees or around some of your fruit bushes or just in amongst your vegetables, you're going to be creating a nice ecosystem there where beneficial insects come in and they'll take care of some of those other pests that are attacking your plants. So you have more of a balance. And that's really what you're trying to create with a foodscape is create more of a balance in your yard so it's not a monoculture of certain all this kind of shrub or all that kind of tree, but you have a diversity of plants there that will attract birds, that will attract bats, that will attract snakes. I know you don't want to have too many snakes. but snakes. Oh, I love snakes. They'll attract all these beneficials that will help your garden thrive. Yeah, just be, so people know, not everything is going to be attracted to snakes. Snakes do not like mint. They don't care for bee balm particularly. Um, I like having the rat snakes around because they take care of the rodents. And yes. we've, you know, as our area has gone from being way far out in the country to getting, you know, the city has been kind of enclosing us. It's not city yet, but it's getting darn close. And, of course, the wild animals don't have any place to go. Then they still want to multiply like they did in cornfields, so they, they all move in. And so having the rat snakes and king snakes and things around is, is a good thing. Yes, it is a good thing to have. You mentioned having a water garden, having water sources around is a nice way to uh, have a lot of these beneficial animals and insects in your yard, too. Just kind of mimicking what happens in nature. When you take a look at nature and how much diversity is there, if you can mimic that nature diversity in your own yard, you're going to have less likelihood of one pest coming in and just wiping everything out. 
diversity is the key as in gardening, just as it is in so many things, isn't it? And people don't have to have a water, a whole water garden either. There are wonderful little pondless waterfalls. And the birds like them. It's a good moisture source uh, for the birds, and they can flutter around in it. But the water just it recirculates, and you don't have to worry about your kids falling in it if you have young children. Yes, that's a good idea. Yeah, so there's lots of different ways to integrate these pieces in there to create that diversity. And the foodscape plants are really kind of a key component. And we often will think about them as like, well, what happens with the strawberry when it's done producing? Well, in the book, Foodscaping, that I'm talking about, I mentioned a lot of plants that have multi-season interest to them. So not only do they look good when they're flowering or when they're fruiting, but they look good in the fall too. So picking out those kinds of plants and making sure you have some of those in your foodscape will help enhance it. Now, there are certain vegetables that are just beautiful in and of themselves, like the Bright Light Swiss chard or any of mm-hmm. the Swiss chard series that have the beautiful color leaves, colorful leaves and petioles to them. Or some of the beautiful chili peppers, the hot peppers like black pearl, have these jet black leaves to them. And then the red, uh, the purple, leaf, purple flowers lead to red fruits that have a nice contrast of color with those jet black leaves. So you can get these kinds of plants in your landscape that will look good all summer long, not just when they're flowering or fruiting, but all summer long. And having that in there is a really key way to add nice color, especially if you're trying to substitute some foodscape plants into your flower garden, you don't want to sacrifice some of your flowers, well, put some of the more colorful ones in there, and you'll see that it'll really brighten it right up. Color for vegetables, like you mentioned, bright lights chart, that is for sure. And now there are some sweet peppers that are small and multicolor, have multicolors on the same um, plant, too. Yes, and some there are many variegated leaf vegetables out there and some edible flowers like the Alaska nasturtiums or some of the variegated peppers. So there's a lot of ways you can get color into your garden. You mentioned um, several flowers, edible flowers in your book, and I'd like to talk to that, talk about that in a little bit. I'd also like to talk to you about um, some of the some of the not so well-behaved plants like bee balm and what people can do to control their bee balm. Yeah, but we'll, we, I would like to remind you that you're listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show, and we'll be back right after this. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome 
Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and I'm talking today with Charlie Nardozzi, who is a garden writer, a radio host, a TV personality. Um, you're a garden coach, too, aren't you? Uh, yes, I do garden coaching. Um, it's up in my local area, which is kind of a mix between consulting and landscape design. So uh, you have a landscaper who will come in and actually do the physical work, and then you might hire a landscape designer who will come in and sketch it all out on a beautiful plan on a piece of paper. I'm the person who comes in kind of does a little bit of both. I come in, and I won't actually do the work with you, even though I'll show you how to do some of the things, and I won't actually sketch out a design, but I will tell you, we'll have a conversation about problem areas in your yard, um, how to grow this over here, what you should grow over there, what should I replace with that, um, how do I prune my tree? How do I get the lawn to come back? Kind of answer those questions that sometimes are hard to find answers for and do it out in your yard. So it's, it's a nice little service that I do locally here in Vermont. Garden coaching is fun. I worked for Extension for a long time, and I got quite a number of those same questions. So I, But one of the questions I got a lot was, you know, how, how should I design this? Or who's a good landscape designer? So I'd, I went back to school to learn landscape design. So I did that for a while, too. But what I, re, what I really, really liked was going out and showing people how to make their yard better, how to grow without pesticides, how to right. prune so it didn't look like somebody had taken a buzz cut to it. Exactly. Uh, that was yeah. the fun stuff. And, and Do you find that, those, too? Yeah, a lot of those topics are things I cover in foodscaping, too, when you talk about finding the right plant for the right place. And, and it's all, all the information I give you in the foodscaping book is all organic gardening. So I, I'm not a, a chemical gardener at all, and I'm always pushing people towards organic because it's safer and you want to know what's sprayed on your plants is safe, especially if you're going to eat them. And you want to be uh, having stuff that's safe for the environment, too, for all the wildlife and the soil microbes and everything else. So there are so many great ways to garden organically now that you really don't have to resort to chemicals. And it's nice to be able to share that with people and to try to get them to move more in that direction, and hopefully books like this will do that. And you did a great job, and I wasn't quite sure what to expect when I got it, um, but I, I enjoyed it very, very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, we did a... We tried to make it a very pictorial book, so there's a lot of pictures in there, a lot of examples of things, specific examples. So I even have a section where I say, if you're growing this, replace it with that, that kind of a section. So uh, to give you some ideas on types of plants that might look kind of similar and have still a similar function in your landscape, but have ones that have edible qualities to them so you can get some food out of them as well as enjoy the beauty of them. You have some very nice, lush pictures in your book. Your picture of bee balm, for example, makes me even consider growing it again. <laughs> well, it took me five plants. years to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, there are some plants like bee balm and like mints that can be very aggressive. So you have to be clever about how you're going to grow them in a landscape. So, for example, if you're going to grow something like a bee balm or a mint, you maybe want to put it in a spot where you can let it run on a bank or on a hillside or somewhere where it's going to have a natural border. Maybe it runs up against the stone wall or runs up against the lawn where you're going to be mowing it down all the time. So that way you're not always battling to try to save the other plants that are getting crowded out by these more aggressive neighbors of them. Or you can take mint, for example, and keep it in a pot and bury the pot into the soil wherever you're going to be growing it and leave it that way. So eventually it will start growing the pot, but it will dwarf it enough so you can stay on top of it so it doesn't spread as quickly. So just by being clever with it about where you're planting it and how you're planting it, you can contain some of these more aggressive edibles. 
I think bee balm was one of the first butterfly-attracting flowers that I ever grew. And I made the mistake. I, I knew I wanted to be able to see the pretty butterflies. So I put it in butterfly weed near the driveway, not thinking that the other name for Minarda is bee balm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Squeezing past it to get to the mailbox was, you know, between the car and, and, and it to go to the mailbox was sometimes an adventure. Yeah. Um, though I have to say the bees were never aggressive. They were always very, very busy on the bee bomb. It just made me a little bit nervous. Yeah. But isn't it fun are, to make mistakes? They're very focused, the bees, on the, the plants and the pollen and the nectar. So uh, as long as you don't bother them too much, they tend not to bother you. I'm glad that you said that because I know a lot of people have an unnatural fear of bees because they might have gotten stung once or twice. And, right. and, and yeah, getting stung hurts like the dickens. Uh, yes, but, of course. And there are certain bees, you mentioned yellow jackets uh, and hornets uh, earlier in the show, um, that you do have to watch out for, especially as you get more towards the fall and they're looking for food. Um, but for the most part, especially the pollinating bees, the honeybees, the bumblebees, the native bees, the mason bees, uh, those are not the kind of bees that are really will attack you. No, they're just content to go about their business. Um, you talk a lot about some other flowers, um, and I was surprised to see, even though I know daylilies are edible, I was surprised to see it in your list. Yes. Uh, well, daylilies are, uh, I also say in my talks that if I was ever stuck on a desert island with one plant, I would be taking a daylily. And that's because almost the whole thing is edible. So you have the edible daylily flower, which you can eat as, in the bud stage, which is very delicious, kind of a nutty, honey, sweet flavor to it. Um, or you can let it open up and take the individual petals and put those on salads. Or take the flower and stuff it like a squash blossom. Many people will take uh, squash blossoms and stuff them and serve them. They're very delicious. Uh, you can do the same thing with a daylily. Plus, if you dug up the plant, and often daylilies, like a lot of these other plants, can be pretty aggressive. They can spread over time. The daylily has these tuberous roots to them that you can actually take out and, and bake like you would a potato, and you can eat it that way, too. So it's got edibility, edibility on the top and the bottom, and it's a beautiful thing to have in the landscape. So. Um, daylilies are one of those plants that are just great to have, and just having a different range of colors of them, different sizes of them, ones that bloom early, ones that bloom later. Uh, have some evergreen ones if you're in warmer places like Georgia where you can grow the ever, evergreen daylilies. They're just great additions to the landscape. And they're just plain pretty. And they're just plain pretty. Exactly. <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier planting borage for the bees. Mm -hmm. Do you eat that also? The borage, I really, it's all about the bees for them. You know, borage is really more of a medicinal plant. I haven't really done much with it as an edible plant, um, but I grow that one because it's a beautiful plant, and the bees really like it, and it works really well in the edible landscape that way. Um, but there are lots of other plants that you can grow. Um, a lot of herbs naturally are flowering, even things like thyme and oregano, just to let them flower, even though the leaves at that point will not have as much oil in its flavor as if you pick them earlier before the flowering. If you let some of them flower along the way, you'll actually be attracting those bees. Even things like basil. There are some of the African basils that have some beautiful purple stems and leaves with purple veins on them, and actually the flowers have some purple to them as well. So as you're picking your basil and you get to a point where you've had enough basil, you can just let it go to flower instead of keep pinching it, and you'll see how beautiful it is in the landscape. And the bees will appreciate it being able to come and collect the pollen and the nectar. 
And in really hot climates like ours, sometimes in midsummer when it's, you know, close to 100 degrees just about every day, um, there isn't really much else out there that flowers, but things like thyme and basil would just go to town at that time. Yes, so you just be being aware of where you're living in the country and your growing cycle, too. Of course, if you're in the southeast and the southwest, Texas, places like that, where it's very hot in the summer, you might have to change your cycle a little bit. But you can still be growing some nice edible plants in that same landscape. Maybe you'll focus more on some of the edible trees that will be growing there. Persimmons, for example. If you're looking for a nice shade tree in your yard, persimmon is an often uh, neglected tree that is a beautiful one to have. If you're, even if you're this far north where I am in Vermont, I grow persimmons up here. There's an American persimmon that is hardy enough up here, but certainly all the Japanese varieties will grow well in the south and in the west, and they're beautiful landscape trees. They grow 20, 30 feet tall. They have beautiful large leaves that have a beautiful orange color to them in the fall, and then the fun part is the leaves will drop, and then all the orange fruits will just hang on the trees in November, December, and you just wait till they get ripe enough, and you can just pick them, and if you've never had a fresh persimmon off a tree, ah, oh, it's amazing. You're making me very hungry. <laughs> <laughs> persimmons here idea. persimmons here are a little difficult because we have so many possums that like them and raccoons. Yeah, I've oh, but, but you don't have possums, do you? We do have possums, but we don't grow enough persimmons, I think, for them <laughs> to get very hungry about them. So what you might have to do with your persimmon is pick it when, before it gets that mushy, ripe uh, flavor to it, and then let it ripen indoors, because persimmons will do that. Um, but yes, it is a kind of tree, another alternative tree for a landscape. Instead of growing just a big shade tree, maybe grow a persimmon tree. Or if you want a smaller tree, maybe some of the serviceberry trees, the amelanchias. Um, really nice native tree that has white flowers in the spring, beautiful blueberries in the middle of the summer. If you get them. Excuse me? <laughs> I if said you if you them. get any of them. Right. I know the birds <laughs> love them as much as we do. And yeah. then it has nice golden color, almost uh, burgundy colored leaves in the fall. So having a native tree like that in your landscape, you know it's well adapted. It's, there are varieties and species of amelanchia that really much, pretty much fit all around the country. So just picking the right one for your landscape and working it in, you can have some of that edibility in there. Now, now that you've got everybody hungry, tell us about your tours that you do. Oh, okay. Well, shift gears. So on my website, gardeningwithcharlie.com, gardeningwithcharlie.com, you'll see a whole bunch of things that I do. Uh, there's a lot of gardening information, first of all, excerpts from this book, from other books. Uh, radio podcasts I do, some videos that I've done over the years, a number of different educational products that are out there you can take a look at and just enjoy. But you'll also see that I do trips. If you go down to the Meet Charlie tab, you'll see that this fall I'm going to Sicily. So I'm doing a food and garden tour of Sicily, uh, September 24th to October 3rd. And the idea with these trips that I've been doing for five or six years now is that we go to an area of the world and we really kind of get into the immerse ourselves in the culture of the garden and the food of that area. So we're going to stay in the south and east part of Sicily. We're going to be going to an herb farm where we'll, do, uh, we'll learn about growing herbs in Sicily as well as doing a cooking class there. We'll do another cooking class up in the foothills of Mount Etna. We'll be going to private gardens that will be opened up by garden club members and some public gardens. We'll even be going to a pistachio festival on the foothills of Mount Etna, which is the largest volcano in Italy. Uh, so it's going to be a fun trip, October 24th to, excuse me, September 24th to October 3rd. Uh, if you're interested in finding out more about it, go to gardeningwithcharlie.com. 
look at the tab that says Meet Charlie, click that on, you'll see one of the options is the Sicily trip. Uh, it's a lot of fun. You should come, Daryl. Oh, I would like to. The walking would kill me, though. Um, but, <laughs> but you know, I'm, I'm an old woman with lousy knees and lousy shoulders, and you know, so I don't I don't travel much anymore. But I would love to do that because I always wanted to go to Italy. I've been to several places in Europe, but I've, but never any place that far south. And I just like to explore different places. And it sounds like a wonderful tour. About how many are on your in your groups? Well, right now we have a, we capped it at 25, and right now we're about 20, 22. So we have a few places still available. Um, since we are leaving in September, we're going to close it off pretty soon. So if you're listening to the show and you're interested, jump onto that website, gardeningwithcharlie.com, and take a look at it. That sounds like a wonderful thing to do, and I hope some of our listeners take advantage of it because I can't because I know how much you know, and you make it fun to to teach other people too. Yeah, we try to keep it fun and light, and it's certainly an organized tour, but there's free time for exploring and, and sightseeing and just enjoying yourself in Italy. Because if you go to Italy, you got to eat and you've got to enjoy. That sounds wonderful. We, we've just about out of time today, but I'd like to remind people that Charlie's book is Foodscaping, Practical and Innovative Ways to Create an Edible Landscape. And if you're thinking about this, if you're downsizing or just bought a house, get the book. That's all the time we have for this week. But we'll be back with more Americans Homegrown Veggie Show next week. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.